So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1315, Bonnie Koo, the author of Defining Wealth for Women. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. One thing I think that it's really important for women to understand is, and this is even before you get to like, how do I invest or what should I do? Is like, we have to like take a step back and realize there's like literally millennia of brainwashing that women have undergone. Pursuing a career in medicine can be prestigious, but is it worth it? Especially if you're taking on six figures in debt. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest is Bonnie Koo. She was previously on the show a few years ago talking about her personal experience attending medical school, taking on $200,000 worth of student loan debt, as well as tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. She became a dermatologist, but through that, had to learn how to manage her own money, invest, and pay down all her loans. She's since taken control of her financial life, and she's helping other professional women and doctors master their money. She blogs at MissBonnieMD.com, and she has a new book out. It's called Defining Wealth for Women, Peace, Purpose, and Plenty of Cash. In the book, Bonnie tackles our mindset around money, particularly the female mindset, showing us why everything we've learned about money is probably wrong. If you're thinking of going to medical school, Bonnie offers some pretty candid advice. And she offers some forecasts about the future of healthcare and the medical profession. A lot of people calling the system broken. How can we fix it? Is it fixable? Here's Bonnie Koo. Bonnie Koo, welcome back to So Money. It's been a minute. It's been four years, in fact. A lot has happened. You have a book. Want to get into it? But first, welcome to the show. How have you been? Thanks so much for having me. It's so fun to be here after some time has passed. Catch me up. I mean, you were living in Hawaii, moved back to New Jersey. Personal life. Give me give me the, the TLDR. Yeah. I mean, last time we chatted, I was, you know, a full-time dermatologist and Fast forward four years and I've moved around, got to live in Hawaii during our winter, which is amazing. I highly recommend it. Coming back and experiencing two winters since that has been interesting. (laughs) And I actually stopped seeing patients. Let's get into it. Last time you were here, you talked about your journey of going from someone with six figures worth of debt, largely from medical school to now becoming a go-to financial expert, primarily for female physicians, which is such an underserved market, as you know. Um, I have often sometimes uh, listeners who write in and uh, men and women who are doctors or anybody who went through an academic path that was whether it was graduate school, getting a PhD, business school, where they're saddled with all this debt with the promise that they're going to someday make a lot more money, but uh, the road is not always so so paven and clear. So you now, as you mentioned, you've given up seeing patients. How are you making do? Yeah. And it's funny, people always ask me about why I decided to stop seeing patients. And because I know quite a few physicians who are trying to leave medicine, but I was 
that was actually not my primary goal. Like I was working on my financial coaching business and it was going well, but I always envisioned like I was going to do a little bit of both because the great thing about medicine is like, you can really carve out whatever you want to do. Like a lot of physicians work part-time. And so that was going to be my plan. But then as you know, the pandemic happened, the pandemic literally happened right when I was starting to look for part-time opportunities in the tri-state area. And so, as you know, everything shut down, including dermatology offices, you know, cause we're non-essential initially, right? Now everything's back up and running. But honestly, what happened was I was like, should I get a job? And this was before the vaccine. And I, and I just felt like if I don't have to put myself in harm's way, because, you know, I, I have a young son who's, you know, not vaccine eligible and my partner, it's like, if I don't have to like purposely expose myself to COVID. And this is when like we didn't know anything about it and we all thought it was doom and gloom. And I found I. I'm really grateful that I was in a position where I didn't have to work for money. It didn't mean that my business was totally solvent, but I was making money with this. I was, you know, becoming more confident in my ability to create money with it. And I basically decided to take a chance. Like, why not? And if it didn't work out, I could always go back to being a physician, yeah. right? And this is your third professional act. I read, you know, you talked about how you were first worked in finance. Well, personal, well, I guess for Morgan Stanley. So not personal finance, but more like Wall Street. Then you went to medical school became a dermatologist. But through that, learned that there was this underserved market of, of physicians, mainly women physicians, that there was no discussion around how to manage money. You actually overheard a conversation of some male peers talking about investing. And that's how that's what started your journey. I'm hearing from you that maybe one of the ways to <clears throat> make the most out of a degree, in particular, a medical degree that is, we, th we think of it as like one path, like going and working for a hospital or starting, you know, working at a university. But the entrepreneurial blend, I think, is something that we don't talk about enough, like how to actually take your degree and not feel like you're confined to the system, the healthcare system, which I hear from a lot of nurses and doctors is just flat out broken. Would you say that's a that's something that you want to start teaching your, your audience more about or that's where a lot of the conversations totally. go? I think mm -hmm. a lot of the burnout that I think is now making the big news because doctors were already burned out and then COVID just accelerated that is that I think when a physician or anyone in healthcare thinks the only way they can use that knowledge or degree to like see patients, work for a hospital, start their own practice. So obviously if you're a practice owner, you're already an entrepreneur, right? Cause you're a business owner. But I always tell my clients, like our knowledge is so valuable and there's so many ways to use it. And as an entrepreneur, I'm like, I just see so many ways people can use their degrees, right? So we already have examples like, um, cause I know you have kids. Have you heard of the car seat lady? I have not. Okay. She's just a, she has a, you know, famous website to help everything with car seats, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. I wish I had known about her. Uh, Car seats are, it's like the, people don't talk about this and as far as parenting. It's like, how many hours in your life do you dedicate to like installing car seats? It's too much. We were on a trip in Florida. Yeah. Figuring out which one to get, which one's safe. Yeah. And then it's not like it's one car seat for traveling like, like with a car seat. It. It's it's like one time we were at a, like a, a car rental agency that came, the car came with a, with a, a seat, but we had to install it. It took like two and a half hours. It's like the blind. Yeah. So blind. she has videos. So like. That's, a, that's an example of a pediatrician who took her knowledge, saw a need, right? And created this. I don't think she was consciously, I don't know her whole story, yeah. but now she has this, you know, business where she helps people with their car seats. Let's talk about your book, Been Years in the Making, Defining Wealth for Women. 
peace, purpose, and plenty of cash. You dedicate this again to many of your um, female audience members, community members who are physicians or thinking about becoming doctors. So I want to give you the floor to talk about how it really does stand out from the crowd of personal finance books, particularly for women. Yeah. So, you know, obviously I haven't read all the books dedicated to women, but one thing I think that it's really important for women to understand is, and this is even before you get to like, how do I invest or what should I do is like, we have to like take a step back and realize there's like literally millennia of brainwashing that women have undergone. And what I mean by that is all the socialization due to patriarchy and laws for example, I'm sure you know this, like it wasn't until 1974 in the U.S. that we we couldn't open a line of credit without a man's signature. Like that's not that long ago. Correct. Right. You know, our, our ability to own property and have separate economies like that happened in the 1900s. And before that, like we just weren't considered, you know, we were property technically. What's the word? competent enough to even do that. Right. We were like a man's property. Mm -hmm. And so, and I say that, and even though like, we're not consciously thinking about that because we didn't grow up in that era, but the remnants of that like percolate in what we think we're allowed to do or not do. And so what my book talks about is it kind of like brings it up to the surface and it explains why so many women have underlying beliefs like, Oh, I'm not good with money or I'm not allowed to be rich. I shouldn't be rich. And all this like shame and guilt. Like I give them the origins of those beliefs. Like they think it's them. I mean, it is right. Cause it's inside your head, but it's not like an accident that so many women have these similar like limiting money beliefs. Mm -hmm. And so we have to address that. And I think also I really give women permission to have some compassion for themselves, for themselves. Like it's not their fault that, they have all these negative feelings around money. And especially if you grew up in a religious household or any sort of cultural, you know, I'm Korean American. And so, and I grew up in a Christian house. I always have like a double whammy, like you got to work hard for money, right? Like you shouldn't want to buy fancy things. Cause that's not, that's not like, you know, becoming or things like that. So it's not virtuous. Yeah. Interesting too, because you're your, your audience, you know, these women who went and became doctors, which in and of itself is such an accomplishment, a male driven industry. And yet they have and harbor these financial mind blocks. Can you talk about the disparity there? Because on the one hand, they're very, I would say, progressive and, and have this can do attitude when it comes to their careers. But when it comes to money, it's not the same. And what do you think is going on there? Yeah. Well, I think this is applicable to any sort of what I you know, say type A high achieving women. So doctors, lawyers, you know, anyone in corporate. And I think it's a, it, what happens is, yeah, we're successful on the outside. Like we're making good money, multiple six figures, maybe even more. But then inside we're like, we thought maybe we, I think we all thought like once we were making the money, we would feel fine about money or everything would fall into place. And here we are making all this money, maybe living and having all the things we always dreamed of, but we're like, but it doesn't seem like enough. And then what happens is, you have all this money and then you're like so afraid of losing it. And I'm talking, you know, like everyone obviously handles their money differently. But I have a subset of clients who are like so afraid of losing what they have. And so they're really scared of investing. But I think it's also this shame. Like I'm so smart. I'm so successful. But here's this area where like I don't have my stuff together. And this is money. This could also be like weight as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So step one is taking a giant step back and realizing what might be driving your the false narratives circling in your head. How do you actually reconcile with that though? That that sometimes can require 
therapy? What is the exercise? Yeah. So this is actually one of the reasons I became a certified life coach during my financial coaching journey. And so I got certified with the life coach school. And so what that means is I'm actually trained to help my clients examine their thoughts. But the first step is always awareness, right? Because a lot of times we have this subconscious program we're not even aware of. But when my clients enter my world or read their book, I have exercises where they are able to like journal out their thoughts about money. Cause most of us aren't going around thinking, yeah, I think you only have to work hard for money. We're not like walking around thinking them, but a lot of the way we live our worlds and the actions we take is based on this subconscious programming that we basically internalize from our parents and society growing up. And now that we're adults, most of us just haven't questioned these assumptions. So the first step is just them becoming aware, like what am I actually believing about money? And that's always the first step. And a lot of them are like, shocked. And then sometimes they're really, I wouldn't say upset, but they're just, they're just surprised at what they're believing. And then because they've believed it for so long, they think it's true. And so it can be jarring when I, when I just, I don't even tell them, no, it's not this, it's that. Cause it's not my job to tell them what's real, but I just question it. Right. I'm like, what if you're wrong about this? And even that question's mm-hmm. like, what? <laughs> I'll tell you a really simple question you can ask yourself. I've asked myself this is just why? why aren't you earning more? Why aren't you happy with the way that you're making money? Why do you think you can't find a different way to make money? Why do you think you have to do the job that you have? Like, I mean, just really getting to the root of it. And a lot of times we, uh, firstly, we will blame the systems and a lot of the things that are out of our control. I think those are important to recognize, but, at, but there's also a layer to this, which is what are you, how are you perpetuating that in some ways? Yeah. No, exactly. How are you just making that your, your existence? Yeah. I mean, that's, and that's what you just said is so true. Like that's what I help my clients with, like focusing on what they can control versus I think a lot of times our brains go to what we can't control, right? You just said like the system, et cetera. And here's what I want to say about the system. And when I first heard this, it blew my mind because we can talk about the system in so many areas, right? But when it comes to like women and let's say the gender pay gap, just for example, the system is created by people. And so that's why I feel like, you know, it's my job and, you know, obviously you're a part of this too. Like our job is to like help and change one person at a time. And then those people will then change the system, right? But it's going to take a, what's the word? Um, the tipping point, right? Because <laughs> that, that mm-hmm. book's about. And so that's how I think about the system now. Instead of like, it's me against the system. It's like, no, I am part of the system. And and the more women I help, that, that that's how the system's going to change. Yeah. And your complacency contributes to that system enduring. Yeah. You know, it's not all on us. It's not all on the individual, but, but, but you, we, you're correct. You're, we all do play a role. One of the biggest question marks, and I get this, and I'm sure you get this even more because you speak directly to this community, is how to transition out of academia. How can they overcome the debt in a fashion where they can like focus on that and focus on their careers and not feel completely sucked out and drained yeah. by the financial I overwhelm? I have a pretty, and I'm going to use the word radical, pretty radical view on debt because most people think debt is bad. And I actually have a whole chapter devoted to that because most of us have been brought up to believe that debt is bad, especially if your religion, even like certain religions will say debt is bad, like literally. And so a lot of our stress about debt is because we think it's bad to have it, even though we went into it, it, it allowed us to become a physician. Right. And so I really like to neutralize that. Like, Debt in itself is 
doesn't have feelings. It's not good or bad. You know, it's, it's a, I think of it as a tool, just like money is a tool. And the way I explain debt, which I think will help, you know, your listeners is debt is simply money that you bought. And the price of the money is the interest. And so you want to just question why you have the debt, right? There's kind of like why. So like for, for my audience, it's, they took on loans to become a doctor, right? So it's like, I don't like to prescribe to the good debt, bad debt, but obviously if you have debt because you overspend, that's a whole, you know, it's a different, you know, sort of thing to talk about. And so the debt in itself isn't what's creating stress and anxiety for my clients. It's their thoughts about debt. And so I really focus on that. It's, I would say this is probably the hardest thing my clients struggle with because it's so ingrained in us that debt is bad. And they think because they have it, it means they're bad with money or they think, oh, because I have it, I can't live my life. Or, you know, they kind of put a lot of, they give debt a lot of power basically, right? Mm -hmm. And not only that, society says we should get rid of it as fast as possible. So I see these doctors working extra hours, like taking on extra shifts to pay off the debt. Now, there's nothing wrong with paying off the debt, Farnoosh. Like I'm not, I'm not saying don't pay it off, but I just wish there was more of a push to educate doctors or anyone that, yeah, paying off debt is great and all, but we really should focus on investing and buying and growing assets that will then pay off the debt for you. Because I joke to my clients, I'm like, when your debt is paid off, like, do you start getting checks in the mail? And like, everyone laughs. They're like, of course not. I'm like, then why are you so obsessed with paying it off? Like, I want my clients to be obsessed with growing assets, buying and growing assets, you know, because that's what's going to send you checks in the mail. And so I literally ask people, do you want to be debt free or would you rather make money while you sleep? Like, I know what I want to do. It's much harder to go that route. It's much easier to pay off debt. And so I go into the brain science of that paying off debt is actually very pleasurable for our brains. Buying and growing assets, not so much. A lot of risk involved, a lot of fear involved. And most of us aren't equipped to overcome those fears, especially my people, Farnoosh, because they're used to getting A's. <laughs> Meaning yeah. they're not, failure is not like an option, right? What would be your advice to somebody who comes to you and says, I'm thinking of going to medical school because I want to, you know, obviously I want to help heal the world, but I also feel like this could be a big financial payday. It used to be, you know, um, a lot of my parents, friends, the wealthiest ones are the doctors. And now I feel like in my, in my generation, like the doctors are, are not the wealthiest. It's the entrepreneurs that are the wealthiest or, you know, those who've worked in finance. And so unfortunately, this, this career path that should be handsomely paid and rewarded um, against the debt, it, it doesn't always equal that. So what do you want to hear from someone before they go down this path, especially if it means taking on debt? Yeah. So a med school is it's so astronomically expensive. Like I don't even feel like I graduated that long ago. I think I was class of 2009. And I remember I went to Columbia University and my tuition was $40,000 a year. Tack on, you know, room and housing, maybe it was 60 to 70, which is a lot. Now it's over a hundred K for that. Like, you know, 10 years later, but we don't have to talk about the tuition, the skyrocketing inflation. What I would tell someone who's interested in medical school, and it's so interesting, like if money's there, the money can't be their sole reason. Right. Because and, and not, I'm not just saying that as a blanket statement, but like medical school and training is it's too hard and grueling to just do it for the money. Like, I think you can make much more money doing a lot of other jobs out there. As you and I know, like, I think entrepreneurship, if you can make as much money as you truly want to. And 
at the same time with medicine, I think there's so much you can do with your degree that can help so many people besides regular patient practice. I've met a lot of physician entrepreneurs who blend practicing medicine with like inventing things. And so I really think the sky, I truly believe the sky is the limit for physicians and entrepreneurship. They don't have to be separate, but I think, yeah, to go into medicine, you have to really love it. Otherwise it's just, you're just going to quit. And this is kind of like entrepreneurship, Like you have to love it and want it so badly to deal with all the setbacks as an entrepreneur, right? Given everything that's happened in the last couple of years within, as you mentioned, the healthcare system was already broken. COVID, uh, I mean, just like uh, ruined it for many doctors who I'm reading anecdotally, like leaving the industry, they're burnt out. They're not, they don't feel supported. They feel like actually in some ways threatened depending on where they work and mentality and ideologies around vaccines and all of that. And so do you think there's going to be a reckoning? I feel like this is not sustainable. And this is one of the most important backbones of a of civilization, right? You need to take care of your people. You need to take care of your, your citizens. What are you and your fellow doctor friends talking about as far as like what you'd like to see or what is around the corner in terms of supporting the community, the medical community? Yeah. Such an important question. You know, there's actually a... As you know, like coaching has been around forever, especially for executives, like all the C-suite men have like executive coaches. And so actually there is a paper that came out a few years ago, like in the medical literature about how effective coaching is for physicians. This isn't about making doctors happy so they stay, but it's kind of like what we talked about earlier. It's like helping doctors see like what they can control versus what they can't control. And I think the more we empower physicians to see that at the end of the day, hospitals, et cetera, they can't function without doctors. Like they can't. And I think doctor, I think we forgot, I think a lot of physicians, like we forgot that. I think we feel like we don't have power because there's been this gradual move towards um, being an employee as a physician. Like, you know, our parents' generation, most doctors set up their own shop and now private practices, like they're just big conglomerates now. Right. So I think slowly physicians will take their power back as they realize that they actually have a lot more power than, you know, that we think we'd and like, it's going to take, you know, like I said, one physician at a time to get the courage to like, kind of say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do my own thing. And doctors also have to band together, which is not something we're good at. I think some of the other health professions are much better at sort of coming together as a group. We tend to be kind of divided as a profession, but I think change is happening for Noosh because even myself and some of my other physician friends who no longer practice, like we're, we're definitely a little scared about the future. Like who's going to take care of us. And, you know, this is no, um, no shade to the other health professionals, but I think, you know, physicians are required for the, you know, top level medical care. You know, like I want a physician, if I'm going to go to the emergency room, I want a physician, if I have a stroke, right. It's just, you can't compete with that expertise. And so, I don't think doctors are going to quit in mass drove so that there'll be no doctors. Like, I don't think that's going to happen, but I do think we're headed towards trouble if we don't rectify the situation and we're the ones who have to change it. I think that's really what it comes down to is like doctors are going to be the one to lead the change. Like we can't rely on the system to change. You know what I mean? Well, we're seeing that in other industries too. Creatives on Spotify uh, saying, I'm not going to distribute my content because I disagree with, you know, some of the, some of the leadership and decisions or the employees at Netflix doing a walkout, right? There's like uh, literally people leaving, you know, various tech firms because uh, of not feeling mm, like this is a safe place to 
to work or where I want to, this is not aligned with my values. And going back to women, Bonnie, you know, your book is dedicated to women and where we sit today versus where we were like three years ago, where I feel like a lot of the discussion around female financial empowerment and career was like very optimistic. We were in a more optimistic place. Now, you know, fast forward after everything that's happened with COVID and then the the recession that followed, more women became caregivers. They dropped out of the workforce. Now we'll have to see how that shakes out. But what is your forecast for women in the workplace and their ability to make the money? Yeah, I definitely have, you know, compassion for, because, you know, you know, my kiddo goes to preschool and every time someone has COVID, he has to stay home for two weeks and we're very blessed that we can work from home. But it's even if you work from home, it's not easy to have a toddler running around, especially no. if you're running a business, right? Both myself and my partner are work from home now. And so I think this, this is also like questioning our assumptions because we have these assumptions about ourselves, especially if you're a mom, that we can't have a we can't make a lot of money and be a great mom like that is definitely something that i think is ingrained in women also as you know the disproportionate amount of the child rearing the household management falls on women and so i think what i want to say about this is we have to just we also have to just question this whole cuz i think it comes down to for us it's like a time thing right like well i can't do everything time wise because most of us think money comes from time and so yeah, I actually have a friend who coaches or she helps uh, moms who want to become like entrepreneurs because a lot of moms don't even see that as an option. And so because like, oh, I don't have time for that. I'm a full time mom. And obviously not every mom has to become an entrepreneur. But if if you're listening and you feel that tug that you're I don't want to say meant for something more as if mom, being a mom is enough. But if you feel like there's something else that you want to do, like listen to that, you know, and that there are so many resources and it's the thing is, Fernish, like when, when you're in this entrepreneur world, like we're, I'm sure you and I, we both know so many women who are making lots of money and they're not working 80 hours a week. In fact, a lot of my business coach, you know, she made $10 million last year and she works 15 hours a week. And I think she took off four months last year. And so that might sound like an extreme example. And, and also when you hear that people are people, th it's like shocking because because we have this belief that if you don't work hard, there's something wrong. And so you have to kind of uncouple that learning that time creates money. And mm -hmm. so I think if you're just committed to having more money, whether it's for yourself, for your family, like I just want whoever's listening to know that it's possible to do it without working all the time. In fact, you can work very little, very few hours time wise and still create a lot of money, but you have to be willing to learn a different way. Thank you for sharing that. And what next? What is next for you? Um, I know that for authors, when they release a book out into the world, part of it is just kind of like seeing what happens and doing the good work of, of spreading the word. But like, what, what do you hope will be the next chapter in your journey helping women with money? Yeah, I mean, my business is, you know, a, a book is obviously, you know, great. I think of the book also like, it's like, a like it's a legacy, right? Like, um, this is going to be hopefully read beyond, you know, my lifetime. And I think it's going to be helpful for all women, not just for, you know, our generation, but, you know, I always tell mom, like, this is something your daughter can read when she's a teenager, right? Like it's written, you know, it's easy to read. And so I kind of think of myself as being part of like this movement, this reckoning, as I, I love that word, this reckoning, like where women are, like one of the things I love to say to people or women, Farnoosh, is that I like to say, you are meant to be wealthy. And people are like, what? What do you mean? Because I think like we just think like we were giving this 
piece of paper as if this is like what we're allowed to do for the rest of our lives. And so when I give them permission, like what I can have as much money as I want, or I can do whatever I want, like, cause money's just like part of that equation. That's why the the tagline, my book is peace, purpose, and plenty of cash, right? Cause Mm -hmm. having a lot of money is kind of meaningless if you don't, if you're not satisfied and feel like you have meaning in your life. Right. And so I think I just find, I consider myself, you know, along with you and all the other, you know, women out there helping women with their monies, like we're just helping women like reclaim the power that they've always had. They just forgot they had it. Don't ask for permission. You don't need to ask for permission. You know, I think that's, it's such a, an instinct that we have sometimes. And it's again, to your original point, it's like rooted in millennia (laughs) of uh, conditioning. And we haven't always been given um, what we deserve, but now it's ours for the grabbing. Yep. Bonnie Koo, thank you so much for joining and congratulations on your book, Defining Wealth for Women, Peace, Purpose, and Plenty of Cash, available everywhere. Thank you. Thanks so much to Bonnie for joining us. Again, her book is called Defining Wealth for Women. And through February 18th, Bonnie is hosting an exclusive coaching and community experience for women. It's part virtual book club, part live coaching. You can learn more about it on her website at wealthymommd.com forward slash book. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'll see you back here on Wednesday. I hope your day is so money. <laughs>